The text for Pastor John's sermon this morning is from Romans chapter 6, verses 14 to 19. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. And now, Father, as we undertake in these last minutes of worship to exult in this glorious truth about being under grace, and not under law. Help me to speak the truth and to speak it in a way that would be winsome and compelling so that you would draw to yourself those who are outside the sway of these things into their power and grant that we would be confirmed in our joy of faith under grace and get triumph over sin which shall not be master over us. I ask for your help in this now. In Jesus' powerful name, amen. Last week I tried to answer the question, what does under law mean and what does under grace mean? And in a sentence... I said that under law means that you are bound to make law-keeping the righteousness that is the basis of your justification. So if you're under law, you are relating to the law as that which calls law-keeping to be the basis of your justification. Under grace means that Christ came under law, fulfilled that for us, and now we receive the gift of grace, the gift of righteousness, which is not our own, but His, and we are under grace with an alien righteousness imputed to us. Today's question is, why does being under grace guarantee that sin will not be master over us. Verse 14. Notice the logic. Sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now, to get clear this, you need to make sure you don't mistake those first words for a command. It's not... Sin shall not be master over you like thou shalt not commit adultery. It's not a command. It's a promise. It's an assurance. The command came in verse 13 and verse 14 grounds verse 13. 
Verse 13 says, do not go on presenting your members, the members of your body, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present, it's a command, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. That's the command. Now here comes the ground for sin will not be master over you. Now, if that sounds strange to you, that way of talking, there's a reason for it. And it's not a flattering one. Does it sound strange, as it does to all of us the first time we hear it, to say, don't let sin master you because sin is not going to master you. Now, Here's my explanation for why that sounds strange to us. Sounds strange to us because we bring a man-centered bias to the Bible that puts our self-determination at the center of choices. In other words, we come to the Bible by nature with the bias that if the Bible tells me to make a choice... Which it does, right here in verse 13. Don't present your members to sin. Don't do that. We come with the bias that if it tells me to make that choice, I, and not God, in that moment, have the final say. As to whether I'll make that choice. I have the final, ultimate, self-determining say. That's the bias we bring. So... When the Bible says, don't sin because sin will not rule your life, doesn't compute. We immediately jump to crazy conclusions. Well, if it will not, then sin. Don't yield to sin. Because sin will not be master over you. That's the way the Bible talks about ethics. That's the way the Bible talks about choices. We need to learn from the Bible. Not to bring this bias to the Bible. If you come with a bias, genuine, responsible, accountable choice means ultimate self-determination the connection between verses 13 and 14 will not work. Don't yield to sin, because sin is not going to be master over you. We need to learn from Scripture how to think about the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. We, don't, we shouldn't bring our biases Lay them down and learn from God how his sovereignty and your responsibility relate to each other. What we should see is that the sovereignty of God and real responsibility put God's sovereignty in the decisive place. We should see them relating to each other in such a way that the sovereignty of God is decisive, is ultimate. 
so that we talk about our choices as real, accountable, responsible, and dependent on God. So that we say, I choose not to let sin reign in my body because God is at work in me and will not let sin reign in my body. I choose not to let sin reign in my body. So if you have a choice in front of you, do this or do this. And one is sin and one is not. The Bible tells you what to do and you are to do it. And say, God is at work in me so that I will do it. Now this is not unusual. This is not unique to verse 13 and 14. We saw it in verse 1 and 2. Go back up a paragraph. Chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Answer, no. Why not? How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So what's the, what's the logic here? Here you have a command. Don't go on sinning because you're dead. You can't. And the reason that sounds strange to us is because we bring the bias that if I'm not going to go on sinning, I'm going to be the one who ultimately decides whether I go on sinning. That's the bias we bring. And it's not biblical. Since you can't Go on living in sin. Don't go on living in sin. The Bible says. The death of Christ ensures that sin will not be master over you if you are in him. So don't let it be master over you. That all follows from last week. Now today's question is why? Why is it that being under grace means sin will not be master over you? It will not be. And there are three reasons. More than three, only we'll take time to mention three. Number one, when we are under grace, the wrath of God is entirely removed from us so that all God's actions towards us are saving. When, when wrath is removed from us, all the infinite power of God flows not in the channels of anger and wrath, it flows in the channel of mercy. That's all it flows in towards His people. Romans 8.1 There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, That's the same as saying there's no condemnation for those who are under grace. Being under grace and being in Christ are almost synonymous. And what does that imply about our future? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how shall he not then freely with him give us all things? Romans 8.32 If God is for us, who can be against us? If he did the hardest thing in removing his wrath from us at the cost of his own son, will he not then with that same heart that did that 
give us everything it takes to get us to glory, including sanctification. He will. And so my first answer is, the reason being under grace guarantees that sin will not be master over you is that when you're under grace, God has absolutely no more wrath toward you and only friendship and help. Only. All things, the most painful, work together for your good in the hands of a loving father. Second reason. Sin is not going to have dominion or mastery over us under grace because when we are under grace, the paralyzing guilt that makes us feel hopeless that there's any point to fight with sin is taken away. Now this is a sermon from several weeks ago, verse 7 and verse 6 in relation to each other. Let me just rehearse it in a minute or two. Verse 6 of chapter 6 closed. So that we would no longer be slaves of sin. So he's already talking there in terms of slavery to sin, just like he is down in verses 15 following. The goal of this chapter is so that people would not just be justified, but that the justified would learn how to defeat sin in their lives. So he says, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. And then comes the ground in verse 7, because or for... He who has died is justified from sin. And why the translations insist on saying freed is beyond me, because nowhere else in the Apostle Paul's writings is this favorite word of his translated that way, nor, I think, has that suggested meaning. It means exactly here what it does in the other places, namely, the ground of our being freed from sin is our being declared Innocent from sin. And the way it works logically is this. It's just rehearsal from that sermon. One of the huge obstacles to getting free from sinning is the paralyzing guilt that there's no point in trying. I am so guilty. I am so bad. I have done things so often and so repeatedly and the pressure coming down on me is so great of the guilt I feel, I don't even give the thought of triumphing over sin two seconds of my time. There's just no hope. That's what's got to be removed. It's got to be removed. And the way it's removed is justification by faith alone, apart from performances of the law that become the righteousness before God. That's the only hope for people in bondage to guilt. A message of justification. So verse 7 is the message of justification. It grounds this glorious liberation that comes when we realize our righteousness is not our own. It is a gift freely given to us. On the basis of the obedience of Jesus Christ, Romans 5, 18 and 19. So my second answer to the question, how can we be sure or why is it that sin is not going to have dominion over us or master us if we are under grace? Answer number one, wrath is removed. Answer number two, guilt is removed. And when wrath goes and guilt go, a whole new hope 
comes into your life that it might be possible to make some progress against sin in my life and be conformed to Jesus, which is what I want to be. One more reason. Number three. Sin will not master us if we are under grace because when we are under grace, God is at work in us to will and to do His good pleasure. When we are under grace, God is at work in us. He's not just removing guilt. He's not just taking away wrath. He's moving in. He's moving in by His Spirit. We'll learn about the Holy Spirit a lot in the coming chapters. But here it's just God moving in to incline me away from sin to righteousness. Now, where do I get that in this text? Two places. I get it from verse 17 first. Thanks be to God. Now, just stop right there and don't miss the implication of that. Paul gives God thanks for something. What? What God do? Why is God getting thanks here? Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were Committed. And that word committed here is a lousy translation because of the nuances it carries in our language. That sounds like I made a commitment, da, 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 da. That's not at all what the Greek implies. It's the same word for what Judas did to Jesus. He handed him over. He betrayed him. It's a handover. The apostles were handing over people to a teaching that they were to keep. Jesus hands you over to a teaching. Go teach them everything I commanded you. And hands the people over. That's your teaching. That's your charge now. Obey that. Now, how did they come to obey it? And notice what kind of obedience. Not a mechanical obedience. Not a robot-like obedience. This is obedience from the heart. Where did that come from? Where did your obedience come from? God. That's why He's being thanked. You don't thank God for something He didn't do. God did this. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient. I thank God that you became obedient. I thank God you obeyed the gospel. I thank God I knelt with my mom when I was six and received Christ. I thank God He's kept me out of life-destroying sin. I thank God. You're going to thank yourself? Don't do that. Thank God. Here's the second place I see it. Verse 18. Got to do a little grammar lesson here with you now. Back to 7th and 8th grade. You know the difference between a passive verb and an active verb? Okay. Active verb. I'm doing the action. Passive verb. It's being done to me. Let's read verse 18 with that grammar lesson in mind. And having been freed from sin, you literally were enslaved 
to righteousness. Two passive verbs. You were freed. You were enslaved. Somebody did that to you. Somebody freed you. And somebody enslaved you to righteousness. Who is that? Answer, God. He's getting the thanks here. Thanks be to God that you've been freed. Thanks be to God that you've been enslaved to righteousness. So, my third answer is, under grace, sin will not rule your life because under grace, God has moved into your life and is inclining you to obedience. So here they are. Number one. Under grace, all wrath is removed. Under grace, all guilt is taken away. And under grace, God, by His Spirit, moves into your life and does the necessary transforming work to incline you to obedience from your, your heart. Close with three exhortations very briefly. Number one, when you hear the Bible say, sin will not be master over us, don't jump to the conclusion it's teaching perfectionism. That you in this life can become perfect. Don't jump to that conclusion. Paul said in Philippians 3.12, Not that I've already perfect nor have already attained, but I press on to lay hold of that for which I've been laid hold of. He said in 2 Corinthians 3.18, We are being changed from one degree of glory to the other. And that comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. One degree, little degree at a time, not all at once. And thirdly, he said, Oh my, will he ever say in chapter 7, The very thing... I want to do, I do not do. And though he makes sin the culprit, he owns it and takes responsibility for it. Wretched man that I am, who will free me from this body of death? So you might ask, well, if it doesn't mean perfection, what's it mean? What, what does it mean to say sin will not be your Lord? That's a literal translation, verse 14. Sin will not master you. It won't be your Lord. We'll go back to my picture a week ago. We got the castle. We got this attacking sin. And we got a throne. Once sin enslaved you and held you captive because it sat on the throne. And now in Christ, he's off the throne. God's on the throne. And your life is devoted to making war on this intruder and pretender to the throne until he is wholly out of your life, which will happen in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. And the evidence of whether God is on the throne of your life and not sin is whether you make war. Not whether you always win the battles. Second exhortation. When you hear that there's a real battle, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. And you hear me say, one of the reasons it won't reign is because God is at work in you to incline you to obey. 
that therefore the battle is a charade? Don't jump to that conclusion either. It's not a charade. The sovereignty of God does not relate to the responsibility of man so as to make the responsibility of man a charade. Well, how does it relate? You should say something like this. Since it depends on God ultimately, there is hope that I, a dead, hardened sinner, may choose what is good and live a life pleasing to the Lord. Let the sovereignty of God make you hopeful that change is possible, not passive, that change is unnecessary. I'll say that again. Let the sovereignty of God make you hopeful that change is possible and not passive as though change weren't necessary, which it most certainly is, as we will see in the next two weeks as we move to the end of this chapter. Last exhortation. Realize that Paul is teaching us in this chapter how to live to the glory of God. You wonder, and you may scratch your head there and say, Whoa, this book, this Romans, these strange ways of talking, why? Why don't you just say, just do it? Just don't sin. That's simple. I get that. I can write that in my palm pilot. Just tell me what to do. I can get the list. Why complicate it with, because you're under grace, don't sin. Because you're dead to sin, don't sin. Because you're in Christ, don't sin. Because sin will not rule in your body, don't sin. Why complicate it with all these because clauses and give me this massive, confusing, sovereignty of God theology underneath? Just tell me what to do. Here's the reason. You do it that way, you get the glory. If that's your theology, I just do it and I can do it. You get the glory. But if you say, I will work out my salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in me to will and to do His good pleasure, God gets the glory. And that's what this whole book is about. It's what our church is about. It's what the universe is about. How do you live? How do you fight sin so that God gets the glory, not you get the glory? And the answer is, being under grace, all wrath is removed by God. Being under grace, all guilt is removed by God. Being under grace, all your will is inclined over toward, toward righteousness by God. Therefore, enjoy, Christian, enjoy being under grace this morning. And those of you who sit out there, outside grace, come under grace. It's faith. You come under grace by receiving the gift of grace and the righteousness that was provided by us 
in Jesus. And then being under grace, leave in just a moment free from wrath, free from guilt, free from fear, and enabled to make some progress this week against sin and give evidence that you are Christ's. Let's pray. And now, Father, would you dismiss us into our Sunday afternoon under grace? Would you bring everyone in this room under grace? And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you, give you peace. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.